Good morning. No clapping today, huh? Last week you clapped for me. <laughs> I'm only kidding. Just kidding. If you have your Bibles, you want to turn to Nehemiah 3, 1 to 32. Nehemiah chapter 3, 1 to 32. If you weren't here last week, they clapped for me because I walked in like really, really, really late. So uh, when I got into traditions this morning, I said, you guys got to start early, man, because I got to get out of here. And I walked in halfway through this song, and I was excited. I like to see the offering because that means I'm not late. Let's ask God to guide our time. Father God, we talk about the passion of our lives, the passion of the church being your holiness and your holiness wrought in us. May that be more than just words we sing. May that be reality. May your holiness through us be an expression of our worship and our outreach to a world that desperately needs to see you. And Father, as we look at Nehemiah, certainly a man who desired your holiness and your glory, may we learn from him, may we be challenged by what is recorded about him, and may we imitate those aspects of his life that are transferable principles. Guide us, we ask, in the name of Christ. Amen. I remember many years ago when Betty Ann and I were in graduate school, some friends of ours, I'll call them the Jays, were moving out of town. They weren't just moving out of town locally, they were moving out of state. And in those days, uh, when our friends would move, we all would get a U-Haul and sometimes we would descend on that family's apartment, and we would help them to load up the U-Haul and help them as they moved to another part of the country. And so our friends had very diligently asked about 12 of us to show up on a particular Saturday morning. And knowing that they were traveling out of state, that meant that they only have one shot to do this well. We only have one shot to pack this fully because they would be traveling out of state. They wouldn't have the opportunity to get whatever we missed or whatever didn't fit. Because of that, my buddies and I made the assumption that they would be ready for us on Saturday morning, that they would have a number of boxes well packed and prepared, and that we would be carrying things down the stairs, out across the lawn, into the truck. But when we arrived, we discovered they had not packed a single box. In fact, we discovered that they didn't have any boxes. They hadn't gotten any boxes. They didn't have any packing materials. They didn't have any tape. So several of us went out and got some boxes and packing material and tape. And we began to load this thing up, and they didn't have a plan. No plan, no coordination, no leadership. So some of us guys got together and we talked about it 
And we decided that if we didn't take matters into our own hands, we were going to be here until the rapture. And so we decided that we would ask, we made the mistake of asking the guy, not the gal. We asked the guy, can we pack the boxes, pack the cars, and pack the trucks? And he shrugged his shoulders and said, sure. And so we carefully packed all the china. And if you've seen a U-Haul, in the very front, it's called Grandma's Attic. It's a great place to put breakables. So we packed all the breakables there and continued to fill up the trailer. And we packed the cars. And I'm not sure how far we had gotten, but I would say more than halfway, and the cars were full, when the wife discovered that her china was not in the cars, but was in the front of the truck in Grandma's Attic. And to say that she was not pleased would be an understatement. And she asked us to unpack the cars and unpack the trailers and take the stuff from Grandma's attic and put it in the cars. And we did it with great joy. <laughs> we learned two things that day. We learned that the Jays have actually no leadership, coordination, administrative skills. And we also learned that if they ever have to move again, our calendars are filled on that day. It doesn't matter when they're moving, we are all busy. But in contrast to the Jays, I think of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is a man of incredible skill. He's a man that will take 75 different people groups, 40 different sections of the wall, 10 different gates, people who both live within the walls and those in the outside community, and he will coordinate them to build a two-and-a-half-mile wall, according to chapter 6, verse 15, in 52 days. Now you and I have come to that section of the book that talks about the building of the walls. Now if you've ever read Nehemiah chapter 3, several things are going to occur. First, you're going to feel sorry for me because I've got to read all the names. Now when you have to read names publicly, you do it with authority whether you know how to pronounce them or not. Because you don't know how to pronounce them any better than I do. But the second thing, as you read chapter 3, is that you'll say, are we really going to work through this? I mean, isn't this one of those sections of Scripture you kind of skip because, I mean, it really doesn't have application to the 21st century? But actually, the third chapter is central to the book because the book of Nehemiah is about building the walls and now we're actually getting the activity of wall building in chapter 3. One author has somewhat put it this way. He said, to every man his work, that's the motto of the book. And as you read through chapter 3, you and I discover that what we do with our talents, our treasures, what we do with our time matters to God. God has a part of the wall that's being built in the 21st century, and he wants to know what part you and I are willing to participate upon. There's always a part of the wall for kingdom work, 
And what we see here is that our work truly matters to God. This record ought to stir up our hearts. It ought to stir up our minds. It ought to remind us that someday we will come before the judgment seat of Christ. And what we do in the flesh will be evaluated by God and we will receive extra eternal rewards or lose rewards we could have had for eternity based on what we do with the time and the treasures and the talents that God has entrusted to us here on earth. This list reminds us that our work matters to God. In a moment, we're going to see this in several passages, but it's all over Scripture. In a moment, we'll read in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 to 15, that whether we build with gold, silver, precious stones, good things, or wood, hay, and stubble, bad things, our work will be evaluated by fire, and what is left will result in rewards that God will give the faithful who use their time, talents, and treasures for his purpose. We won't go there today, but we could go to 2 Corinthians 5.10 that says that all will appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one, what he has done in the flesh, will be evaluated by God. We could go to Romans chapter 14, 1-12, that is all about how our work matters to God and how God will evaluate what we do for kingdom purposes. Now, as you and I begin, we're going to see an incredible work. In verse 1 all the way to verse 32, we're going to see they start at the sheep gate, they end at the sheep gate, they're going to go counterclockwise, but all of these sections will be built simultaneously. This is an engineering marvel. And in this engineering marvel, it's all about God. Let me read verse 1. Then Elishab, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it. Hear that? They consecrated it. Go back to Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. At the beginning of this process, we have Nehemiah, whose brother comes back from Jerusalem. Nehemiah has never been there. He's at the citadel of Susa, a thousand miles away. This is the place of his ancestry, but he's not ever been to Jerusalem. But his brother comes back and says the walls are in ruins. The people's lives are in ruins. And you remember for the next four months what Nehemiah does. He mourns, he fasts, he prays. Four months, he lays his face before the Lord, and he says, Lord, what do you want me to do about a problem a thousand miles away? Four months of caring for people in another part of the world, another culture, mourning and fasting and praying. And then God has him share with King Artaxerxes, the most powerful man on the world, that God has laid on Nehemiah's heart to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. And there are four more months of preparation and planning and plotting and prayer. So we have eight months of praying before the Lord. And then he finally arrives at Jerusalem, and for the next three days, he plots and he plans and he prays and he prepares his heart. And finally the wall begins. And how does verse 1 begin? They're building the sheep gate, and they consecrate it to the Lord. 
sometimes we have a tendency to dichotomize our lives between the secular and the sacred. The sacred is maybe Sunday morning and Wednesday night and a few times a devotion during the week. And the secular is what we do for a living. Or a secular is what we do with our free time. But Nehemiah will not allow thy dichotomy. Nehemiah teaches us that the sacred and the secular go together. And so we have planning and plotting and preparing. We have work and we have prayer and mourning and fasting. And it's all together so that even when they begin the work, they start out by consecrating to the Lord. Now, as you and I begin this text, chapter 3, I think there's three principles of leadership we're going to see in Nehemiah's life. We're going to see incredible coordination. We're going to see motivation. And we're going to see commendation. Coordination, motivation, commendation. Let's start with coordination. I want to read verses 6 to 9. Earlier today, uh, a young youth who's in this room right now, uh, he heard me practice a little bit uh, for my sound check, and he said, man, there's a lot of names. There are a lot of names. Be thankful you're not the one reading it. By the way, let me tell you what I did. This is embarrassing. It's shameful. But when Brian Whitaker first came back on staff, I was preaching through a group of names, and, and Brian didn't know that I didn't have somebody read before I preach. So I had him come up on stage and read all the names on a Sunday morning. I'm really ashamed of myself, but it was fun. <laughs> Sam, where, where's Sam? <laughs> Verse 6. Joeda, the son of Passia, and Melsham, the son of Besodiah, repaired the gate of Yeshanah. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts and its bars. And next to them repaired Malatiah, the Gibeonite, and Jadon, the Moranathite, the men of Gibeon and Mizpah, the seat of the governor of the prince beyond the river. Next to them, Uziel, the son of Haiah, goldsmiths, repaired. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, repaired. And they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Raphael, the son of Hur, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. Again, a careful examination has 30 times beside him, next to him. We have 40 sections of the wall, 10 gates, 75 people groups. And you say, well, all right, they're building the wall, but at least they're building over the old foundation so they know where to build. That's not exactly true. We know from Kathleen Kenyon, a world-famous archaeologist in 1962, that much of the eastern bank had eroded, and so the wall is actually built over sections that do not even approximate where the original wall was. By the way, that work has continued from 1962, and it was reopened in 2016 and 2017, so we know even more about the wall that Nehemiah built. We have a broad section, 44 feet of which that have been excavated, and that wall in the broad section is 26 feet wide. So we know that some of the wall is at least 26 feet wide. Some might be narrower, some might be even wider. This is a major undertaking. It took incredible coordination. 
And remember, chapter 6, verse 15 tells us it was completed in 52 days. Let's also note that it's done by rank amateurs. We have goldsmiths. We have perfumers. We have politicians. Now, they might be very good at their craft, but they're probably not good with a trowel. They're probably not good with mortar. They're not probably good with stone. So not only is he coordinating two and a half miles, 40 sections, 10 gates, 75 people groups, but he also has to have all the materials present, unlike the Jays who didn't even have boxes. He has all the, the materials for two, two and a half miles, and a lot of it is not being built on an own foundation, so he has to have it marked out very carefully, and all of it is going on. And one man, Nehemiah, who has plotted, planned, prepared, and prayed, he's overseeing the work. That is an impressive leader. We might also notice that he motivates people who do not live within the walls. Let me read verses 2, 5, and 7. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. Jericho, at best, is 15 miles away from Jerusalem. So how do you get people 15 miles away who will not be protected by the walls to build? And next to them, Zachar, the son of Imri, built. Verse 5. And next to them, the Tokaites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. Verse 7. And next to them repaired Malatiah the Gibeonite, and Jaden the Moronathite, the men of Gibeon and Mizpah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Somehow he motivates in the midst of his coordination people who will not be protected by the wall to help build the wall. That is tremendous leadership. And then we read verse 5. It's rather discouraging. The Tekoan nobles, they would not stoop to build the wall for their Lord. It's an interesting Hebraic phrase. This phrase is actually used of a donkey who straightens up his legs, drives his paws into the ground, and brays. Not prays, but brays. It's used of a person who resists. That's the Tekoan nobles. I was at a meeting not long ago with a number of leaders from various churches, and someone made the statement that in church or in religious work, 20% of the people do 80 or 90% of the work. I don't think that's true at Highland. I don't even think that's close to true at Highland. I don't think we have very many Tekoan nobles. But the question I have from the text is this. It's a question for me. It's a question for you. If the advancement of the kingdom were dependent on you or me, what would the advancement be like? If the sharing of the gospel were dependent on you or me, how many people would hear the gospel? If people who were hurting were dependent on you or me to care for the needs, how many people would be cared for? If the finances of the kingdom were dependent on you and me, what would the budget be like? If the service or the teaching were dependent on you and me, what would the service 
for the teaching be like? If the behind the scenes things that really carry any ministry were dependent on you or me, what would it be like? If the upfront ministries, which are necessary to carry forth the, the teaching of God's word and the corporate worship of a great God, if it were dependent on you and me, what would it be like? If people who need a meal or people who need prayer were dependent on you and me, what would it be like? The Tekoans would not stoop themselves to serve the Lord they claim they love. I trust that that isn't true for you or me. Now, we need to be careful. Salvation is never dependent on what you and I do. Salvation is only dependent on what Christ has done for us. Salvation is dependent upon Jesus Christ, fully God taking on human flesh, never sinning but laying down his life on the cross and paying the penalty of sin, our sin, that if by faith we would believe in him, we would be given eternal life. But having received faith, Paul says that we are to work out that salvation with fear and trembling, that our works matter to God, not as a means of salvation, but an act of response, an act of worship, an act of appreciation, an act of glory for the God in which you and I serve. That's really what we read in 1 Corinthians 3. Let me read 10 to 15. I love this because it's a building metaphor and well, Nehemiah is all about building. According to the grace of God, that's how we're saved, God's grace, what we don't deserve. Given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. The foundation of the Christian church is Christ Jesus. Always has been, always will be. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, that is good things, or wood, hay, and straw, bad things, each one's work will become manifest for the day, the day of judgment will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. God promises that. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Our works do matter to God. They never determine eternal destination. That's determined by the finished work of Christ and faith in what Jesus did for us. But having been saved, you and I are called to be not like the Tekoans, we are called to be like the many who worked on the wall, who found a place to serve, a place to build, a place to advance the kingdom for God's glory. Where's your place on the wall? Where is mine? Well, not only do we have coordination, but we have incredible motivation. I want us to notice that not only does Nehemiah have people serve, but he has them serve in areas that approximates what they're interested in. We might say we serve in areas of our spiritual giftedness. That's not exactly what goes on in this text, but 
he has them serve in areas where they have a vested interest in building up the wall. Let's look at this motivation. Verse 1 again. Let me uh, turn to the text. It says then, Elishab, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. That's pretty good motivation. You notice that it's a priest and other priests that are building the sheep gate. There's 40 places on the wall. There's 10 different gates. Why have the priests build this one? Well, because it approximates what they do for a living. The sheep gate are where the animals that are used in the sacrifices in the Old Testament temple go through. This is near where they work, and this gate is necessary for their work. They have a vested interest in this gate being built well. That's motivation. He's not only coordinated 75 groups, 40 parts of the wall, 10 gates, over two and a half miles, much of it not on the foundation but on virgin soil, some of it with people outside the area, but he's thought through, this is a part of the wall that I want this group to build because it will motivate them. This is another part of the wall. Have them build because it will motivate them. When this campus had stage three built, that's the part over that way with the... uh, the youth room, the cafe, the offices. You may remember if you were here that we paid a a company to essentially build the shell. But then a bunch of women and men uh, volunteered certain nights and weekends and they came and hung the rock and they taped and they floated and they dropped some of the ceiling and they painted the walls. We did a lot of the interior on our own. Now I probably worked in Most of the major areas. But there's one part of the building I built by myself. I don't really want you to go look at the walls. They're probably not even. They're probably not square. It's probably the worst part of the entire building. But I built it. It's my office. You see, I knew that I would be right next to Dave Mahler. And Dave Mahler is loud. (laughs) And the women across, we won't even go there. And when I'm studying the Bible, I need quiet. So why did I build my room? Well, because I cheated. I doubled the rock. I have two layers of sheetrock in my whole office, and I have insulation that I had put in between them. Why? Because I need quiet. It was motivating to me to build that part of the building because it would benefit what I do For a living. We see this principle in the text. Let me read verses 23 and 28. After them, Benjamin and Hashab repaired opposite what? Their house. After them, Azariah, the son of Masiah, son of Ananiah, repaired where? Beside his own house. Verse 28. Above the horse gate, the priests repaired each one opposite where? His own house. Now think about it. If you're building the wall, and the part that you're building is across from your house, you're motivated to build it well. Maybe 26 feet thick is not thick enough because it's across from your house. Maybe you make it 28 or 30 feet thick and a couple extra feet high. Now you're building in a two and a half mile area. You've got to take your tools to work. 
It takes time to go one and a quarter miles away and one and a quarter miles back. But if you're building across from your area, you don't waste time to and from. You maximize the work. What happens if you're building and the enemy comes? You're probably not going to run if you're building in front of your own house because you're going to protect your family. You're going to stand firm. And if you're building in front of your own house, you might even get other family members to participate. Look at verse 12. Next to him, Shalom, son of Halohesh, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired he and his daughters. I love that. I have three daughters. Give them a trowel. Let's get some mortar out there. Let's get some rocks. We'll build together that which is in front of the house. This is a wise leader. <coughs> he's not only coordinated, he's thought how to motivate those. For instance, suppose you have young at-home children, and they have a hard time with homework, and they come home with a spelling list. How would you motivate them? Well, maybe you make a game out of it, especially if they're competitive. Maybe you divide the words into two groups, and you have a little contest who can win by spelling the most words? They might learn. Hey, you might even learn how to spell. And you would motivate your children. Some companies give bonuses or commendations or raises in order to motivate. We know historically those countries that are very strongly communistic or socialistic have a lower output per person than countries who have some form of capitalism. Why? Because there's something of motivational inertia when you get out of that which you're putting in. From time to time, I've, I've heard, probably two or three times since I've been here, that people say, you know what, it's a little shallow that you give away these, these little tokens at one-way club. These little tokens can buy toys or maybe you can get some money off of a summer vacation by, or a summer camp by memorizing. But I don't think it's at all uh, shallow to give these tokens out. Think of it this way. If a young child memorizes scripture and then when she or he is 16 and faced with a temptation and a verse of scripture comes back into his or her mind and they turn from sin, suddenly I really love these motivational tokens. Now you may say, well, I think the really good Christian, the really sincere Christian doesn't need to be motivated that way. Except God motivates us that way. He actually says if you build with gold, silver, precious stones you will receive a reward. And so God motivates us that way. Why would we not motivate others that way? Well, there's organization or coordination. There's motivation and there's commendation. There's the thanking for those who serve. Let me read verse 11. Malchijah, son of Haram, and Hashub, son of Pahath Moab, repaired another section and the tower of the ovens. The tower of the ovens is where they bake bread. Pahath Moab. It's not the first time we've met this family. 
actually, they're recorded in Ezra chapter 10, around verse 30. One of the males in Pahath Moab purposely married an idolatrous woman out of direct disobedience to the Lord. And that sin was recorded in Holy Scripture. That's kind of discouraging. I'm glad my sins aren't recorded in Holy Scripture. But then they got their life in order, and they've done something good. And what does Nehemiah do? He makes sure that what they did for the Lord was also recorded in Holy Scripture. Isn't that how the church ought to work? A hospital for sinners like, like us? Spurring one another on towards love and good deeds? Encouraging one another on to take the next step in our relationship with Jesus Christ? to connect and grow and go as we serve the Lord? Isn't that the type of way we ought to motivate one another? And so here we have a family that had messed up somewhere in the past who hasn't. And now they've done something good. And where is it? It's recorded in Scripture. How encouraging and how we ought to imitate that. We see the same thing in verse 20. Baruch, son of Zabai zealously repaired another section. Zealously. I love that. What did he do? I have no idea. Did he skip coffee breaks and lunch breaks in order to build the wall? Maybe. Did he arrive early and stay late? Maybe. Did he simultaneously build three sections of the wall by himself? Maybe. I don't know what he did. But he was zealous. And Nehemiah records it. There's, there's commendation. And that's what we ought to do one to another. We ought to commend one another in the kingdom. Maybe it's a spouse that has done something particularly kind and you want to thank him or her. Or maybe you're a teenager and you've come to realize you've grown Enough to realize how much mom and dad have really done for you. And you want to thank mom and dad. Or maybe you're a parent and when your child struggles in an area, maybe academically, and instead of C's, this last report card got C's and B's and real effort. And you want to commend. Or has worked hard at an artistic pursuit and you want to commend. That's part of wise leadership. Here we have organization. We have that coordination. 40 sections, 10 gates, 75 people groups, some within the walls, some outside the walls, two and a half miles, some of it 26 feet wide, some of it on virgin territory, and he coordinates all. That's wise leadership. Motivation. He looked for ways to get the best out of those he was leading in commendation. He thanked them for what they did. Pretty soon we're going to have vacation Bible school on this campus. We've already had it in Weston. We've already had it in Marathon. Some of you have participated already. Some of you will participate. Thank you. Some of you bake meals for those who are hurt. Thank you. 
Some of you pray for individuals who are hurting. Thank you. Yesterday I went to the hospital to pray with a gal who had had a heart attack. The last thing she said to me is, give me some names of some people I can pray for. While she's lying in bed, several people in this congregation she's praying by name for, and she had a heart attack. Thank you. Some people are doing videography and sound and PowerPoint. Thank you. Those flowers outside, they didn't just grow themselves. Thank you. Some people set up, some will take down today. Thank you. Some cleaned. Thank you. Some are going to teach. Some are in the nursery. Some are in children's church. Some work with Gen 180 or women of real devotion, or men's ministries, or journeys, or young adults, or Sunday school. Thank you. There's so many ways, so many serve. Find your place on the wall if you haven't. Thank you. Let's pray. Father God, uh, we thank you for so many who serve so faithfully who have found a place on the wall, who serve, who give, who use their time and talents and treasures, who wisely coordinate, motivate, and commend. Thank you for the Nehemiahs among us. And there are many of both genders. And we're grateful. Father, help us to lead well in the church, outside the church, in our homes and in the community for your glory. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.